You're listening to the Tennis.com Podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Tennis.com Podcast. I'm Ed McGrogan here with Pete Bodo. Pete, uh, how you doing on this nice fall day? Pretty good. Beautiful fall day. Missing the tennis. It's all moving to Asia, so we're, we're done for a while, I guess. Yeah, it, it is all in the evening. That's that's for sure. It's not easy to find either. No. It, you know, not to mention it's kind of um, you know I'm not going to see on ESPN two for quite some time as well. So um, it's it's a time where you and I are actually going to talk a little bit about fall tennis, some of the better fall tennis we've seen over the years later on in, in this podcast. But we're doing we're recording this right now during, as I dubbed it, anti Big Four week on Tennis.com. I mean. I thought we'd give a little uh, shout-out to those who are probably a little tired of seeing all the coverage, probably well-deserved coverage of, of the Big Four for what they've done this year. So we wanted to dedicate this week to all you out there, you know, whoever uh, whoever's on the other side of the coin there. So All of you thing, uh, Fabio Fanini and Ernest Gulbis fans, right? And there are plenty of them, I would contend, actually. Probably not as many as Roger fans, but you know they're they're making their headway there. So what I wanted to actually revisit was an article you wrote in early May. It was called 4x4, Four Four, and it was really comparing this this generation's Big Four to the to a previous generation's Big Four. That would be Borg, Lendl, Connors, and McEnroe. And what and you know since that time, of course, you know. This year's Big Fours won all the Slams, all the Masters. So you can you can add even more credence to what they're doing now and comparing their numbers. But there was one you know statistic of theirs that still you know as you said in that article, and it's still going to hold true now. You know they the original Big Four they won almost 350 titles, and they still missed playing about 66 Grand Slam tournaments, as you said, including. 43 Australian Opens, that was, you know, maybe I'll let you explain it. Australian Open at the time, certainly not what it is today in terms of um, popularity, in terms of credibility. Well, yeah, you know, you got to wonder why. There's got to be something a little bit strange going on if you you keep having this discussion about the greatest player of all time every five years. You know, I mean, you know, I, I don't particularly think it's a useful discussion. It will never be solved, of course, but it does tell you something when, you know, he, you know, Player after player comes up and everyone says, "Gee, they're the greatest player of all time." You know, they've won more Grand Slams in the first six years of their career, or whatever, than all these other old guys. The big thing to remember is it was the, the turning point for tennis in in our era. In some ways, even even within the Open era, was when the Australian Open in 1990 or 89 moved to Flinders Park, left. Kuyong Stadium, and also changed its date to be the first Grand Slam rather than the final Grand Slam of the year. That made everything different. I mean, if you take 25% more Grand Slams played by today's players, especially now that the Australian has actually proven its chops and has embraced fully as a as an you know credible fourth Grand Slam, you know these people have 25% more chance to add to the title count. So that's you know that's kind of an interesting change that's really driving a lot of what we see today. Yeah, and, and like I said, you um, you know, since this piece is written, you know, Murray has won Wimbledon, Rafa won the French and U.S. Opens there. And when you look back at the, at this piece, the the big question was at the time kind of about Murray. It still really, in my mind, remains about Murray. Um, you know, comparing him in in really comparing him to any of these other seven legends um, is still 
something that we're going to have to see how that plays out over the years. You know, a couple of days ago, we had Carlos Moy even writing a, a, a piece um, talking, you know, about Murray, how he is still not if, of the caliber of, say, a Djokovic, a Nadal, someone who consistently sort of without fail is going to bring it at every single term. And I think he, and he was really pointing to this summer's events. He had a terrible U.S. Open series um, as defending champion at Flushing Meadows, you know, went down there. And I kind of wanted to get your take on really Murray sort of right now as he's going forward. He's out with injury for presumably the rest of the season. And, you know, we talk about having Djokovic having a lot of questions about his year, but there are questions to be asked about Murray as well. Well, hey, listen, the, the reality, the stark reality is that come January, we, we might be down to a big two. I mean, let's face it, Federer, you know, unless he really gets some stuff together and makes another big push, is falling off the pace. And Murray now is, you know, especially with his injury, you know, uh, you know, he, as you say, he fell off the pace in this summer. And now we don't know what's going to happen. If you look at the – he's Murray's going to lose over 1,200 ranking points that he cannot replace because of his results last fall. And I'm including now the ATP Tour Finals, and I guess there's still, still some question about whether Murray will be back or not for the World Tour Finals. But let's assume he misses the whole year, which I think is a 90% chance. Uh, you know, he's going he, he's gonna to be losing 1,200 points, and you've got guys, David Ferrer is just f- less than fewer than 400 points behind him, and Beardick, Del Potro, and Federer, all three of them, are within striking distance of Murray's record by the end of the year. Murray could, you know, if he doesn't get off to great start in Australia in his first tournaments back from surgery, Murray could be down around number seven or eight, you know, you know, by come February. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting period, and I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, um, Carlos Moyo is absolutely right. Murray is definitely not in the same league as these guys. I think the reason he was put there really was because of his outstanding performance in Masters 1000 tournaments and all the praise heaped upon him by the other members of the Big Four, which is really a Big Three, and now perhaps even a Big Two. You know, when you mention about where Murray um, could end up, you know, obviously some hypotheticals there, but it boils down to the importance of the ranking system in tennis in, in today's era especially. And this is what you wrote about um, in your piece on Federer a couple, uh, yesterday, right now it's Wednesday, um, and how critical the ranking system is, um, not just a per- more of a perception-based and a really tangible-based thing. It's, it's kind of the elephant that no one can escape, even these players who have proven themselves time and time again the ranking system um, is a beast that seems to ha- it needs to be fed all the time and you know players miss any amount of time were immediately drawn to you know where does this put them in the pecking order and you you talked about that with Federer and I'd like you to, to kind of just reiterate that for some because I thought that was a very strong point about Federer going forward and now you kind of mention it and I, I got to thinking about it as you talk about you know Murray going forward there is how important uh, whether it should be or not, rankings are t- in today's game. Well, they're very important because they really they, they assign a tangible value to people. But you know, just you know, you know that, that old John Lennon and Yoko Ono song, "Imagine." Well, I'll change that to "Imagine there's no heaven." To imagine there's no rankings. All of a sudden, Federer at Wimbledon, you know, who, you know, they just love watching the guy play. So what if he loses in the second round or third round? What if he loses in the semis? Or what if he wins? The fact of the matter is you just go in here, you're watching a great tennis player play tennis, bing, bang, boom, shunt, you're done. So, you know, I mean, I think it really is kind of, a, it, in a sense, it's a really nasty, nasty 
yoke, you know, wheel that these guys are yoked to with these rankings because that's is that is what is likely to make Federer's life miserable in the next twelve months. It's going to be the fact that no matter what he does, even if he, you know, even if he just won't plays two or three tournaments a year, he, you know, he's not going to be able to go out there being ranked number thirty three and you know with a straight face and have people, you know bug him all the time about why his ranking is so low. So, you know, it really does show the underbelly of, of this whole ranking system concept, which, you know, really, again, let's get back to it. It really is. It's a rating and it really it's very valuable, I think, for seating, at least if you agree that seating should be done overall performance rather than, say, surface by surface. Yet, you know, these guys, when they get older, they're, you know, the tour has really tried to be friendlier toward aging champions, yet the ranking system is really unfriendly toward them and really, in some ways, is probably plays a fairly big role in forcing them out of the game. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, Nadal at one point, I think, goes back to talking about how the ranking system, if it was a two-year stretch instead of a one-year window, I mean, do, are you more on the side of the... Are you more on the side of putting the rankings aside as a as a as the be all end all indicator, uh, or do you think the ranking system pre- as presently constituted is is, a, is kind of a fair way and really the only way to judge players and to group them um, in today's game? Well, you know, it's kind of mispromoted. It's promoted as the world rankings, you know, and all right, I don't really want to quibble about semantics, but it really is a rating, and that's a really an important thing to remember, you know, because essentially it shouldn't be. Taken, it shouldn't be money taken to the bank. The ranking, the rankings in quote in, in quotes should only count really at the end of the year, in my opinion. What I'm a big fan of and have been for a long time, and it turns out to be a miserable failure when they tried to sell it to the public, is the race concept. Uh, in the best of all worlds, to me, you would have you would have two computers. You would have the present day computer, which would be your sort of ratings. I would change the name to the ratings, and then you would have the race for number one. Now, people will object and say, "Oh, wait a second! If you know, if Djokovic gets off to a terrible start in Australia, and you know, and Andrea Seppi gets to the semifinals, you know, come middle of February, Seppi could be the number one player in the world in a race." And I, and I think that's fine. You know, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Just like right now, there's no question that Rafael Nadal is the indisputable number one, even though Novak Djokovic is ranked number one. So I really prefer the race approach. And, you know, I'm happily deal with the ups and downs of the early season when you have all these people who are definitely not going to be in a final top 10 probably, you know, maybe positioned reasonably highly. Uh, So, you know, I, I think that that... You know, the fact that so much is put into the weekly rankings and how, you know, falling off every week you have to replace the points you won last time. I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of that, although, you know, it does work, I must say. There's no, you know, you know, it's it's not like an unfair system, but it's 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 a very, very difficult, demanding system for the players. Yeah, the, you know, the cream would rise by the end, of course, and I think uh, maybe a medium ground to uh, to have it is perhaps where... The rankings, per se, in a race system really aren't promoted or revealed until a certain point of the year is passed, say, after the March Masters tournaments or once you're into the clay season. You know, I think that would alleviate some of those concerns where you have, uh, you know, we're picking on the Italians today, Seppi or Fanini becoming number one in the world for a week or two there. So um, it, it's kind of a discussion that always comes back uh, that around... Um, 
any time of year, but especially this time of year when we're kind of thinking about what's going on. Well, here's something um, interesting at- for you, too. You'll remember there used to be the tennis used to be the challenge round, essentially. The champion used to not play until, until you know, the final match. In other words, uh, defending champion at the U.S. Open, Djokovic, would have been sitting on the sidelines until these guys fought it off and his final round opponent, let's say Nadal, would have emerged, and then the two would have played for the title. Now, that sounds kind of crazy now, but it's really not as crazy as you would think, because if you look at, say, prize fighting, boxing, the champ basic is a champ. He sits out until, you know, the, the, the next challenger comes up. and The and, number one contender and, and comes around. They're right. playing him, exactly. The number one contender comes up, and, and they fight each other. And in tennis, it's kind of weird. It's a little bit like a boxer having to fight the whole undercard, you know, having to fight nine guys and then the top contender. That's kind of what it is in tennis. And, you know, there are obviously some advantages to that, especially the promotion of these top players and, you know, the marketability of the game and stuff like that. But in some ways, you know, there is some sense in that old system. It's kind of a charming old uh, thing to revisit. It is, and it it does seem so different than, I think, how almost all sports have been structured today to, uh, you know, I think with any sport, it's you know, rinse and repeat. You have the champion one year, but they're put right back into the fray, you know, practically as soon as they win. I, I think, uh, you know, Davis Cup is probably the best example of that. And that's another thing where the challenge system was, you know, around for so long. Um, well, Davis the Cup ranking system does that too, Eddie. I mean, if you think about the ranking system, that's another big reason you have the ranking system is to get these guys out there and playing, which really means getting them out in front of the public, which really means getting them on television, which really means getting big sponsorship dollars. And that's all fine i'm not criticizing that i'm saying but let's let's be fair that's exactly what it's about yep that's it it does often come back to that that's for sure um you know let's kind of close or, or move on with this talking a little bit about um the fall where we're headed um actually where we've been i i wanted to kind of really just bat with you some of the better fall tennis that we've seen in uh in our watching of the game through the years you know I'm kind of I'm going to lean to you for maybe some pre um, millennium best tennis. Uh, take no offense to that, but I, I really only seriously started watching in the past 15 years or so. And I, I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm thinking back to some of the best stuff I've seen. And one of those I'm going to uh, in the spirit of anti Big Four, we're going to talk about a, a federal loss that happened. Um, in 2005, when this was the year that him and Rafa really split pretty much everything in sight, but by the end, the actual last laugh went to uh, David Nalbandian, who came back uh, at the World Tour or at the time the Tennis Masters Cup to beat Federer in five sets. I'm nearly certain Federer was up two sets in this too, and this is one of those matches where if you go back, it's one of probably the better. YouTube experiences for, you know, looking at a classic match, kind of finding one of those highlight reels with just the best strokes, and you see absolutely some of the best tennis you'll see. This is like kind of watching Safin or Nelbanian really, you know, when they're in the zone, it's it's kind of tough to beat in terms of anybody, and, and he showed that against Federer, who pretty much won everything in sight that year. You know, that match in particular kind of rings a bell as some of the better fall tennis I've seen. I have one for Davis Cup as well, which I'll get to in a minute, but, you know, maybe some, what's what's a, a, a memory of yours for some of the best matches you've seen over the years? 
Well, it's funny. It's interesting. You you know, the thing you have to remember, though, is that there was no Asian circuit a couple of years ago. So, you know, basically the fall tennis was really about tennis being played indoors, usually in Europe. You know, so like, the, if you know, the original Paris, you know, the uh, Paris Masters. Uh, those were all. That's that's an old traditional tournament that was always played there. You had, I think, Germany. I think Stuttgart had a had a tournament then an indoor men's men's event. So there were, you know, most of the action in the fall at that time. There were like little exhibition tournaments in 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 Asian nations or like in the Philippines or you know places like that. But you know, essentially, most of the action was in North America. Uh, I'm sorry, in North, well, actually, some of it was in North America. You had a great tournament out west. You know, you had the Los Los Angeles had the Pacific Southwest tournament that was after the U.S. Open traditionally. There was this tournament in San Francisco in the fall. So there was a pretty healthy indoor circuit with a couple of outdoor things mixed in in the U.S. and Europe. So that all changed really with the new drive and the push to, to promote tennis in Asia. And, you know, in terms of for me, and you know, the, when I think about the fall, you know, I, I can't help but think of that Gustavo Quirton winning, you know, earning a number one ranking on the final day of the season, the final opportunity, and having to do it by being by beating Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras in back-to-back matches, thereby denying Safin, you know, what would have been a number one for the year. So that was just an unbelievable, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of a performance and chance, especially because you couldn't have picked Quirton, a three-time, uh, who never won a Grand Slam on anything other than red clay, you know, nobody would have picked him to win that tournament indoors in Lisbon. And yet yes, he beat those say, guys yeah. back to back. It was just an astonishing end to the year. And he ended up year end number one because of, you know, one swing of the racket. Yeah, that's another Tennis Masters Cup uh, event there, like you said, in Lisbon that, you know, the Federer Nelbany match I was referring to that was in Shanghai. The, the um, you know, Federer Nelbany, Nomad- wasn't, that, wasn't that in Madrid or was it Shanghai? That was Shanghai, actually. This is one okay. of the many stops for the Tennis Masters Cup there. Um, what I was saying about Davis Cup, and I'm going to put to you in a little bit, um, you know, we rarely travel to tournaments after the U.S. Open. There's been so, you know, you and I and anybody else on the on the tennis team here just because, you know, the majors are the big currency, of course, and, you know, all pretty much all of the post-open tournaments are so far away that we don't get to see a lot of it in person. And, and there was a couple of years ago, I had a chance to get out to Seville for the Davis Cup final to see uh, Spain and Argentina, just a classic kind of Davis Cup final matchup there. And, you know, when you travel to an event kind of in this, this really this time where, uh, you don't expect to, or it's something you really haven't ever seen before. That had a pretty great impression on me. Um, I'd never been in that environment before, kind of a cauldron environment with so with such good crowd support from both teams, actually. It ended with Nadal beating Del Potro in four sets in, in a great clay court match where, where Del Potro really had great chances to to take this from Nadal. He, like I said, he ended up going down in four sets, but he took the first set from Rafa, really should have won the four set um, before kind of folding at the end there. And this was, uh, you know, after Nadal, by his standards and our and our expectation for him, sort of had a so-so year where he, he only won the French. And it, it reminds me of kind of what Djokovic may be heading towards when Serbia plays the Czechs in this year's final. You know, this may be really a, a kind of a bigger chance for Djokovic to, you know, to kind of get... A little bit of swagger back, even though it's a team competition for him himself. And, you know, have you been to, 
maybe some of what are some of the events that you have traveled to after the U.S. Open in your time? I'm thinking perhaps um, that classic Davis Cup match uh, in Romania. You can correct me if I'm wrong on the on the date or the countries of that with the U.S. But I'm sure you've had some travels post U.S. Open in the fall in your time. Well, yeah, you know, I did not go to that one. There was, of course, the Grenoble match, USA versus France, where Pete Sampras' debut, and uh, Pete Sampras, in his own words, was like a deer in the headlights, and he just, you know, couldn't get a win. The French, that was a magical moment for Davis Cup, not so much for the U.S., unfortunately, but for Davis Cup, because the French team, essentially, you know, Yannick Noah, Guy Forget, Henri Leconte, you know, they were, you know, it was just, you know, they were heavy underdogs, basically, but they... They really sort of came through. Uh, there have been, you know, you know, numerous, numerous ties. You know, wonderful late season, you know, finishes. Um, I think it was, I think it was in Vegas one year when we played. I believe it was the shoot the checks, maybe uh, or the Swedes actually. And uh, you know, that was a good Davis Cup tie. You know, there there have been a bunch of them in the fall. You know, what I think is the best Davis Cup week though is unfortunately it comes right after the U.S. Open. But it really is that third week because you've got the semifinals. So, you know, just like going to a Grand Slam tournament, the smart place to get the semifinal tickets because then you get to see all four of the top guys. You know, Davis Cup also, if you go, if, if you target Davis Cup in September, at least watching it or tracking it, you have the two great semifinals. And you've got all these great world group matches, which, matchups, which this year produced some really wonderful stuff. I mean, I guess that officially falls into the fall category because it comes after the U.S. Open. And uh, there's just good things because, you you know, got these great world group playoffs featuring all, all these guys this year, three of the top four players, I guess. Um, or wait, yeah, Murray, Murray. No, it too, was so. three of the four. And, and like you said, it's it's to keep their countries afloat in the world group for next year. So this year, like you said, you had Rafa um, and Murray playing for uh, Serbia and Great Britain. Yeah, and we're in a world group playoffs round thing. So, and and a critical one, as you say, because you know it's it's for your fighting for your life in a world group. So that really, I think, is 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 a terrific weekend. Uh, that's that's the most fun, I think. Uh, at least tracking, you can't can't even a journalist who 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 gets paid to go to these things can't really be at all of them at once. Yet, uh, you know, that semifinal weekend is really special. Right, that's the uh, the best grounds pass for sitting at home. If you can if you can cover it all, that is a um, the connoisseur's weekend, I think, of tennis. And I, like I said, I would consider it in the fall as well. There, so um, thank you, Pete, for uh, some of your uh, recounting there of the old Big Four uh, fall events, etc. And we'll be following this fall um, on tennis.com, of course. Like I said, anti Big Four week. Look for Pete's pieces on um, the kryptonite for Murray, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, and uh, much more from us as well, Steve Tigner, Ed McGrogan, Richard Pagliaro. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast once again here at Tennis.com. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.